Residents have reportedly converged on the cemetery, fearing the remains of relatives have been removed. No suspects are in custody as the investigation at the scene continues. Welcome back to March Madman, the show dedicated to deep dives into each subgenre of horror, with the mission to determine which movie is the greatest of all time. Tonight we are returning to Muerto County, Texas, the I believe fictional Muerto County, Texas, to continue our exploration of a film that certainly deserves to be in any discussion of horror cinema at its very best. It's Toby Hooper's 1974 masterpiece, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I do hope you've already listened to part one of this podcast as we began our loving autopsy while our gloves are slick with blood and the instruments are sterile no longer. This body still has secrets to reveal. Let's go to work. As always, I'm John Evans, and my fellow cinematic coroners are Rich Eckersley and Vikram Wheat. Vic, bud, what's new on the ranch, my friend? Uh, it's actually, it's, it's new ranch life stuff. We got a new dog uh, who did not seem as big at the shelter as he did when we got home and now realized that he is, is a, <laughs> essentially a polar bear. We have a, we have a polar bear in the house now. Adorable, very sweet polar bear, uh, but he is he is just gigantic. So you know that's that's fun, uh, keeping us on our toes. But John, what I'm what I'm really excited about, uh, and and I'm going to spoil the season, but uh, I'm going to do it anyway, uh, is that it's spooky season, man. It's we're we're coming up on the month when horror fans everywhere take out their cloaks and rejoice by dancing around fires and sacrificing goats and smearing blood all over their naked bodies. Or at least that's what I do. But, you know, everybody's got their own celebration. Wait, we don't um, do that all year round? Oh, I, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, in fire season, it's really not safe. True. Know? True. <laughs> It's funny, though, like we're recording this just a couple of weeks before Halloween, but I, I doubt very much that many of our listeners, if any, will actually catch this prior to Halloween, the way things are going. Um, but uh, I hope you had a great Halloween, everyone. And, and as horror fans, uh, you're just carrying that right into Thanksgiving. <laughs> Well, the, John, the other thing I've been doing, uh, and, and so if anyone catches this before Halloween, you catch it right after Halloween, and you don't want to let go of that spooky season spirit. What I have been doing is is just gorging myself on horror films. So if it's not yet Halloween, or if it's just after Halloween, and you don't want to let go of that, that wonderful, horrific spirit, um, I just want to run down uh, a couple of these movies, tell you in the shortest possible terms, uh, uh, just the, the smallest capsule review 
so so we can just run down it also because I've been watching all this shit. By the way, I can't remember all of it. It, it looks like we're going to introduce a new feature, Vic's Movie Corner, to each podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it, you're going to get Vic's Movie Corner in the middle of October once a year. Okay, fine. Yes. All right. So real quickly, here we go. You ready? Butterfly Kisses. Fascinating deconstruction of the found footage genre. I really enjoyed it. Unhuman. Weird twist on the zombie movie, uh, sort of teen zombie movie. Liked it, didn't love it, but it does have a twist that you don't see coming. Uh, An Asian horror film called Hospital. I didn't finish it. It wasn't very good. The Apostle, that's uh, the one with Dan Stevens, not the one with Robert (laughs) Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall. Yeah, that's the one with, with Dan Stevens, not the one with Robert Duvall. Uh, solid Wicker Man-ish cult movie. I liked it. Uh, lingering Haunted House movie. Liked it. Pretty good Asian or uh, uh, Malaysian, maybe. Uh, Savage Land is a zombie film done in sort of a mockumentary Lake Mungo type style. Some weird political undertones. Not as scary as I would have liked, uh, but it's it's very well put together. Speak No Evil on Shutter is a Nor- uh, Norwegian film, I think, definitely Scandinavian. John, stay away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> very dark and very weird. Uh, really kind of that like squeamish, uncomfortable horror uh, that goes to a really dark place. Uh, I enjoyed it, but it's also not for everyone. Satan Slaves, uh, I really liked kind of a haunted house movie. Last Shift. Sort of a take on the uh, um, assault on Precinct 13, almost a police officer alone in a in a police precinct that's getting ready to close. Creepy. I liked it. Uh, Raven's Hollow, uh, more literate story about uh, Edgar Allan Poe as a young soldier encountering weird stuff. Eh, I didn't love it. May the Devil Take You, really like that. Very, uh, very Sam Raimi, Evil Dead. May the Devil Take You 2, and that's T-O-O, not the number two. Uh, that one's available on Shutter as a sequel. Still liked it. Uh, didn't Not quite as great as the first one, but I liked it. The Cursed is a werewolf movie with Boyd Holbrook. Dug it, but, you know, sort of in the, in the tamer, of, uh, you know, the Merchant Ivory version of a horror film. Saloon. Now this was cool. This is an African horror film that starts off really as sort of a like a like a almost Tarantino esque like crime movie uh, with these guys escaping from a country when the government collapses with a bunch of drugs and their plane crashes and then it takes a really cool supernatural turn. I dug this one a lot. Nobody sleeps in the woods. Two Polish film. If you haven't seen Nobody Sleeps in the Woods. Worth checking out. It is a slasher film. Uh, not earth-shattering, but pretty good. Nobody Sleeps in the Woods 2 does the strangest fucking thing at the second plot point I've maybe ever seen in a slasher film. It's maybe not brilliant or great, but you don't see this coming, and it's worth watching just for that. U-Turn, uh, another Asian horror film, seems very much inspired by The Grudge. Really liked it right up until the last three minutes because so many horror films fall apart in the last three minutes. And Grim Cuddy, which is airing right now on uh, Hulu. Solid, interesting take on the technology is evil uh, genre and really goes in a direction that that, uh, you, you don't expect. Not the scariest movie, but again, it's got some cool ideas. It's worth checking out. Wow. I, I am. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
I am ashamed of myself because this man has two kids, two dogs, a cat, all kinds of responsibilities, and I have almost none of those things. And <laughs> the only one of those movies I've seen was one that Vic directly recommended to me, which was No One Gets... No, I'm sorry. May the Devil Take You. May the Devil Take You. Yes, which I, I enjoyed as well. Um, well done, Vic. I hope people uh, get some value from that. Uh, before we check in on, on Rich, who's been patiently uh, waiting this whole time uh, to be introduced, I'm going to say that I am drinking, uh, this is a Trader Joe's favorite, apparently, the Speculoos Cookie Butter Beer. It's uh, made with whole vanilla beans, milk sugar, toasted coconut. It's a, it's a full-bodied ale. And uh, it's quite strong, uh, which makes it uh, Vic approved. I would, I would guess. I think it says 9.5% alcohol by volume. So that's just barely meets the threshold for acceptability in Vic's uh, world. And uh, before we throw it to, to Rich, Vic, what are you drinking tonight? Because I know you're drinking something, man. I can tell. <laughs> oh, oh, I am. And, uh, yeah, John, I want to congratulate you for putting on your big boy pants for the podcast tonight, dude. Yeah. Welcome to the club. Uh, I am drinking a uh, Boulevard Bourbon Barrel Quad. Ah, yes. Yes. One of my favorites. Definitely a companion on many a podcast uh, journey that we've embarked upon. So now, finally, yes, our good buddy, Rich. Uh, this week, did you adopt your seventh and eighth children? Uh, or, or what's going on in your world? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm drinking a 13% Cabernet, so... <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's good news. That's good news. No water or fresca or, or stew, huh? <laughs> no water or fresca. I was actually, I was, I was terrified to open my fridge tonight and discover that actually all the beer was gone. So that was, that was a sad state of affairs. Holding down the fort over here with the with the three kids. I haven't seen any of the movies, uh, at least none of them recently. I actually did watch Last Shift uh, a couple of years ago, I think, and, and didn't have super strong feelings about it. But it was very exciting to hear Vic's rundown, although I can't remember any of the titles because he was talking too fast. But the enthusiasm was contagious. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm having a haunting over here of a of a different variety. Um, I've had an, an insidious experience with what appears to be malware, and it has taken my computer down. So I am currently trying to broadcast this through a different device. Hopefully, I'll make it through the night. If I don't, though, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. You sound great, uh, by the way. So no, no degradation of audio quality. But when you said malware, I was thinking like, the sweatsuits that old ladies wear when they just do laps around the mall together. <laughs> yeah. Mallware was the, was the, uh, the byline of, uh, of Killbox two. <laughs> I was going to, I was just going to make a chopping mall joke. It was yeah. or, yeah, in my or, head. Or chopping mall. If that's your, if that's your preferred, uh, title, depending on what's the bond you're on. Uh, I love it. All right. Well, um, you know, for better or for worse, we should probably get back to the movie at this point. But um, fun catching up with you guys. And I believe we left it just after the traumatic scene for viewer and characters alike. A little more for the character. But uh, when 
Pam and uh, Kirk, I think, yeah, they, they meet their end together. I don't know. It's been a couple weeks since we started it, but we're watching this hypnotic, disturbing image of a big old windmill, and we're about to cut back to Sally and Franklin as the this terrible day wanes towards night. So are you ready to hit play, gentlemen? Let's do it. All right. Okay, so Kirk is being a dick and saying that the hitchhiker is coming to get him. Coming to get Franklin, I mean. And Franklin... Wait, I, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. isn't that Jerry? Uh, yes, I, I keep calling... These, I keep mixing these dudes up. Yes, Jerry is Sally's boyfriend. Kirk already died. Thank you, Vic. In my it's notes, I got it mixed up. Jerry with the curl. I, that uh, crossed my mind. That's but, a helpful it, mnemonic device. But it's also worth pointing out that like these characters are both so generally bland mm-hmm. that there's a reason that you, you get them mixed up. And they have the exact same death scene as well. Yeah. <laughs> but Jerry's shirt is awesome. I mean, that is a crazy paisley. I don't know if I could pull that paisley off, man, but I'd have a go at it. <laughs> oh, he has the amazingly stupid idea to, hey, I'm going to walk down to the creek before it gets too dark. And once again, Franklin sends someone off to their death. Sally wants to go with her boyfriend, but Jerry says, ah, you better stay here. I don't think she quite understands why, but she says, all right. Franklin is still stewing. They've been looking for this knife for a while, and we discussed last time, probably doesn't matter, but his knife does mysteriously, Franklin's knife does go missing. Does it turn up again? Nope. Ah, here you get that Jerry ass shot. Yeah. I will say, I actually find, I feel like Franklin has kind of a turn here. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like he recognizes that he's been a pain in the ass, and he's, he's sort of trying to uh, make amends with Sally. Yeah, let's pause it there, because I, I think that is kind of an interesting topic. Um, this time, ironically, I, I think that Rich might be ahead, because I just got to the ass shot. But, all right. Yeah, Jerry was being a dick. Franklin knows that, that the hitchhiker has ill intentions for him, and he's not wrong. And, yeah, Franklin is concerned that his sister might be mad at him. That matters to him. Vic, what, what were your thoughts on, on that point? I, I mean, again, I think I, I find myself on this viewing in particular just being a little more empathetic to Franklin. I mean, A, I think getting that idea in my head that he is somewhere on the, the neurodivergent spectrum makes me understand him a little bit better and why he's so awkward. And then to be, you know, this in in this wheelchair in the middle of Texas where he can't get around, he can't get into the house. He's with all these kind of, you know, these two hot couples, uh, you know, who are just looking for a place to fool around and go skinny dipping. Like, yeah, of course he's miserable. Of course he's having a terrible time. But also, how often does Franklin get invited anywhere? Like, how often does he get invited on a trip like this? And so you see that his frustration sort of boils over in that scene where he just blows raspberries all over the uh, first floor of the house. But now that everything's kind of settled down and you can see that the attention's been diverted elsewhere, right? There's other things going on. We haven't seen Kurt and, and what's her face? Um, Pam. Pam. 
And yeah, you, you knew that one, John. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, we haven't seen Kurt and Pam. We've got to figure out where they are and that sort of stuff. And you just see that he's he's sort of retreated back into like, hey, I'm I'm sorry. Um, and it makes again, it, it, I, I just feel like I understand sort of emotionally the arc that he's that he's going through here. Rich, is this working for you at all? Are you warming to Franklin in any way through all of this? What, what are your feelings about about Franklin in this scene or in a larger sense? Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. Like, in a way, this actually completes Franklin as one of the more three-dimensional characters of the movie, which is a, sort of a, a shocking statement for what feels like such a character for such a uh, a solid portion of the film. But no, he's also he's here with his sister, too. Like, that's the other thing is that you got to remember that there's a familiar relationship here. And so he's able to sort of open up and relate with her on a way that he obviously has a relationship with her that goes, you know, beyond any of the other members of this group. And, yeah, I found it human and relatable and viable. And the performances here are good. I think it shades him in uh, just enough for you to not be rooting for him should something terrible befall him. I'm not saying it's going to in the yeah. event. Well, it's interesting that, you know, also Sally isn't given a too angelic sort of uh, relationship with him. She has a very believable level of that push and pull of yeah i mean she cares about him she wants the best for him she's trying to do right by him but at the same time he's driving her up a fucking wall and he's annoying and she's sick of it and you know for all intents and purposes practically he's a burden in her life and at this moment and i i think that the film really kind of captures that in a authentic way where it's not just like she's like oh of course franklin i I'll will you wherever you want to go. Like in a real sibling dynamic, she's like trying to be patient, but she's really frustrated. This is where Franklin has once again directed someone to their doom. In this case, it's Jerry sends him straight to the house. We're going to follow him with a dynamic moving camera. But I, I love this shot with the sun setting, you know, through the trees up above and we get more of the conversation with Franklin. And uh, yeah, this is what I was alluding to where uh, Sally's just like, I'm just tired. It's been a long day when he says, you didn't really want me to come, did you? And I believe her. There may be a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. And again, yeah. Franklin brings up the Saturn being in retrograde. And she says something meaningful, I think. She says, everything means something, I guess. Which I think kind of alludes to the, the film the film's perspective on this. Like, you never know. And he's still wondering, like, is this guy following them, being the hitchhiker? Interestingly, he says he's probably afraid Kirk will, will kill him. And Kirk, yeah, was kind of taking the lead on the interaction, but did you guys think Kirk was a tough guy? I, I didn't. I don't think the hitchhiker was terribly intimidated by <laughs> any of them. No. To, to be fair. I feel like Sally's really walking the line between, you know, frustrated and stoned. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's tired. Aren't, aren't we all rich? <laughs> Jerry literally um, and metaphorically walks into his sunset here. 
<laughs> the cinematography in this is really gorgeous. I mean, I think when I think about the visuals in this film, so much of it goes to the the dinner scene later on. I forget how just kind of starkly beautiful a lot of the early scenes are. I don't like, think it's an accident that Daniel Pearl has had a long, successful career, the, the DP. Well, you also point out that the sunshine and the fact that they were shooting on 16 millimeter mean that they had to get a lot more light exposure. That's right. Um, in average photography. So I'm guessing they were, ob- they, plus they're in Texas. So it's like, sure, you're just like, everything is just drenched in the sun. Yes. Yes. Now Jerry is like stridently yelling, I'm looking for my friends, banging on the screen door of this house. Do we ever get any sense for where they're coming from? Dallas, maybe? I'm not sure. Does that ever come up? I don't know. I'd have to double check. Maybe for the overview episode, we can cover that. But I had the sense. I'm just wondering because their willingness to walk into these houses, I find a little bit shocking. Uh, And I'm sort of wondering what the... uh, Yeah, like where they... You know, is it... If you come from Austin, maybe it's different. Because out here, it seemed pretty clear that everybody would know, you know, you don't just walk into somebody's house because the door's open. This was a different era. I mean, we're, as like we were talking about earlier with the hitchhiking, like this is just a time period where I think that that mentality was starting to shift in terms of how much you could trust people. And I guess Lake Mungo is all about mom wandering into strangers' houses. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so, Lake Mungo. <laughs> Lake Mungo reference. I love it. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, that that Sally might be high. I, my interpretation of that last sequence was that Franklin might be high because his paranoia is leading him to examine and discuss everything that might potentially be responsible for their doom. That's where, you know, the hitchhiker and then Saturn being in retrograde, all these things rush through his mind. Then of course he goes back to the hitchhiker after that. I just, he reads like a scared rat to me. He's obsessed with his own vulnerability, his weakness. And yeah, at, at that point, Sally is over it uh, with Franklin. But I thought that is kind of interesting that the scene kind of still ended on a, on a slightly comedic note. Though I don't recall what that was now that we're past it. <laughs> Speaking of stone. Yeah. yeah I was- I was just thinking I should get stoned. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did for the watch, but... Um, and we can't hear the soundtrack, but uh, there's some, like, occasional symbols going through. Like, uh, not S-Y-M-B-O-L. I'm talking C-Y-M-B-A-L in the score. It's like a cornerstone of of the soundtrack. And to me, they suggest chaos and discord, disharmony, madness and we're getting that while jerry is walking into that sunset and rapping on the family's door and i gotta say i've never entirely loved that aspect of the movie the way that both kirk and jerry impatiently summon their own death like they're at an unmanned 7-eleven counter certain that someone should be present to heed their call for service and both both things are, are very similar beats. So there's that repetition thing. And, and as I've alluded to, I always forget how Jerry dies, even after having seen this movie so many times, because it just is so similar in its setup and execution, no pun intended, 
to Kirk's. Well, there's a, there's a reveal slash scare coming up in in his that is uh, that is unique, but in maybe the least memorable way of this film. Like, if if any of the if any of the kills are tonally off, maybe it's this one. Ah, well, let's double back to that in a, in a few seconds here. But another thing we're missing watching this silent, though the subtitles acknowledge it, is these are these creepy sounds that Jerry is hearing. Um, as he's speaking somewhat stiff lines like quit goofing on me or quit playing games. Okay. You guys, you know, but I think his performance is, is, you know, selling it to a degree, but these lines are not in the upper tier of slasher movie dialogue. In any event, go ahead. His hair is selling it, John. <laughs> That's what's doing the selling. Yeah. We talked about this last time, but yeah, he, he sure with the hair and the glasses reads a lot older than the others. But yeah, so these creepy sounds that he's hearing are not like a pig being slaughtered. So I think we determined by the end of the movie that it's Leatherface, it's Bubba. Uh, to me, it sounds like a Mogwai from Gremlins, but... It's it, it's creepy, and we do we could we could you know start to wonder why Leatherface makes these noise and noises and and what they represent. But at the moment, I I don't have anything for you on that. And he seems even more sort of entitled and dopey as he approaches this wall of skulls. <laughs> I, nobody, it's just like none of these kids seem put off by all of the animal skins and skulls. No, oh, he gives it a look there. He gives it a look. Again, Vic, Texas. Uh, Yeah, it's fair. Actually, this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, a moments in the movie coming up. He hears something knocking on this grimy freezer and he goes up to it and he opens it in a hurry like he knows what's in there and there it is. Pam, and she's so oxygen deprived. Oh. Okay, Leatherface bursts out again, has his sledgehammer, and staves in poor Jerry's skull. Looking around frantically, where's the next threat coming from? Rushes to the window, Looks out the window. Let's pause it here because this is obviously this is a scene to unpack. So 46, 26, 46, 27, something like that. Let's pause it there. Look at uh, look at this kill. I'll just say I'm surprised that you respond so favorably to uh, to that moment with Pam. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually that, that's kind of the thing that I was referring to that like it, it felt like outright silly to me. Uh, and I think it's mostly a performance-based thing. There's there's also a there's a quality to it. Seems like they shot it at two different times, and like there's like a there's like a variance in, in makeup that you see. Like something about it just feels a little like uh, sloppy and amateurish in a way that the rest of the movie surprisingly doesn't. And in in this case, like there there's a real B movie vibe to the the performance and the idea of this person like emerging out of a out of a freezer. Oh, wow. Well, before I say anything, uh, Vic, how did it hit you? I mean, I think clearly it's supposed to be a sort of classic jump scare. 
And I don't think it lands in that department. Now, it's also just a horrifying scene. Like, whatever you think of Pam sort of flopping out, uh, it just it, it leads so immediately into Leatherface's appearance that it doesn't really it doesn't really bother me. You know what I mean? Like you I feel like you have to take this scene as a, a collection of, you know, 30 seconds and that five of them don't work is sort of irrelevant because I love the way that that. Leatherface, after hitting uh, Jerry, just goes back. I mean, again, it's like he's just like throws her back in the freezer like a piece of meat and puts it down. I mean, there's something really astonishing about uh, Gunnar Hansen's performance in this section. You raise an interesting point in that, like, I'd like to take the stopwatch to the whole sequence. I mean, yeah, we are talking about maybe 30 seconds of the movie, and all of this happens in 30 seconds. And, yeah, it, it just rushes over you like a freight train. So to really take it apart does require um, something that's not, you know, germane to the usual drive, drive-in movie kind of experience that most people experienced, uh, had in, in, in 1974. Yeah, I, I literally wrote this bit from The Freezer is Fantastic. So I'll look at my notes here, but it's interesting to, to take Rich's perspective into account. So, first off, is she actually rattling on that thing? I have to assume she is, because that's, you know, how else would he hear anything from from the freezer? And then he opens it, and she looks dead or unconscious. And so, my takeaway on that, because I wasn't immediately sure how it, how it made sense either, but I, I, I feel like, plausibly, she has nothing left in the tank, because dude, she's been asphyxiating in an airtight freezer. She's oxygen deprived. So she's really close to succumbing to that asphyxiation and whatever injuries that she's suffered. So I bet she's just in and out of consciousness at the very, very end. We're, we're witnessing her last moments uh, of life. And so like maybe she has these little bursts of energy and I think the effect is great because cinematically, yeah, maybe it's a little movie-ish, if not B-movie-ish. It does play like the horror of the living dead in that moment when she suddenly reanimates, half frozen to death or asphyxiated. It's very cinematic to me, the timing and the staging of it. It's, yeah, it's a jump scare, but I think it works. And I think that it also works when you just think about more realistically, what is the character going through? And I think that she's in a hellish, hellish place, drifting in and out of consciousness and unconsciousness at the, at the very brink of death. So I'll, I'll look at it again. And, and there was something very stagey, almost vaudevillian about like the way she just, you know, spasmodically comes to life with the staring eyes and everything. But I don't know. I, I, I like it personally. I, I just find myself much more interested with Leatherface in this scene. Again, it's a, it, it's an attempt at a jump scare. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. I feel like it, it didn't, like I didn't jump. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have the desired effect one typically wants when a dead body jumps up all of a sudden. But it just flows so seamlessly into so much other stuff that works that it's just it's the 
sort of the least of my concerns in this scene. It's kind of interesting because when Bubba uses the hammer again to dispatch Jerry in this Kirk 2.0 moment, I think it's fine. It's still kinetic, but I, I don't find it memorable at all. You know, like it doesn't, uh, I, I think the punctuation on the scene of him killing Jerry is absolutely like the most uh, forgettable part. I just think it's, I think it is the humanity in Leatherface that up to this point in killing Kirk and Pam, he's essentially been sort of a machine, a scary machine in a weird fucking mask. And, and those cuts and jumps when he comes out, when we first see him with Kirk are much more effective, but here he looks panicked and you can see that his, when he kills Jerry, it's a panic kill. When he gets Pam back in the freezer, he's freaking out because Pam's hanging out of the freezer. He's got to get her back in the freezer. And so you get the sense that like one or two kids like, well, I guess I took care of that. But a third kid, how many more people are there? How much more is coming? And and again, it's it's he it makes him more than Galoot. You know, it makes him more than Jason in Friday the 13th Part 6. Uh, it, it gives him a little bit of he, he, is, he is both a galoot, but also has these weird layers. And like I said, it's, it's a performance. You can see that Gunnar Hansen is giving a performance here in spite of the, in spite of the mask, in spite of the grunting and the lack of dialogue. Uh, there's, he's, he's actually got a character in mind here. Yeah. I, I really misspoke or didn't make myself clear at all. Like I was actually just referring to the kill. I love what I consider like the next sequence in a sense which is where we're following Leatherface when he runs to the window, he's alarmed. And yeah, I got the same clear picture that you did. He's like, where are all these people coming from? You know, like how many are just going to waltz in here? And he seems really freaked out. Like he's not a spider, just eager to see his carefully designed web continue to catch flies. Yeah. It's a high stress scenario for Leatherface. And I love when he sits down to calm him. He tries to calm himself in this like eerily relatable way. I found it almost feminine, which kind of makes sense because he keeps putting on, you know, he becomes increasingly feminine from this point further in the movie. But you can kind of see him thinking to himself, like, get a grip. And we get our first good look at him. And, and you see he's got something going on with his mouth, like... Maybe it's a hair lip. I don't know. The bottom lip is really large and possibly deformed. And his front teeth are like yellowish. But more importantly, they're jagged. They're not the right size and shape at all. And as we'll see in a second here, we're going to like zoom in on his face and see the odd edges of the teeth really clearly as he keeps running his, his, his tongue over them. And I absolutely love that scene. So that's not at all what I was, I was referring to. Yeah, John, listen, don't don't try to politician your way out of this with like, oh, I misspoke. Okay, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, just, I just want to point out that, the, the, you know, much, much on topic with that, that it, when you're directing your letters to the podcast, yes, John just equated the fact that Leatherface is acting feminine because Leatherface is being hysterical and needs to calm down. <laughs> No, it's like his body language. He's not traditionally like macho, masculine Texas guy is what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, 
mean, yeah, I, I equated it to, I definitely, I put down like childlike was my description. That's there, fair. There, there's something about his reaction that is like, it is, it is like, a, it is definitely a certain level of like irrational kind of like panic and like doesn't know what to do, but like he's just, he's very anxious and he doesn't, but yeah, yeah I agree. I, I think that you hit the nail on the head in terms of like what's most interesting about it is that in any other film, this is the evil mastermind who like they just fell into his trap. Right. And like, it really is like interesting in how that defines it. Uh, even just playing against the type of like what I think people think of this film as, as like this, just this insane chainsaw wielding maniac. And like, that's just not what Leatherface is, at least not in this, uh, this iteration. Yeah, and to be clear, and I, I actually think it's a really interesting conversation we shouldn't be afraid of having, but I, I think that Leatherface, like, women may not want him, but I think he identifies as feminine, and you're going to see a lot of um, indicators of that after this scene, actually. It's certainly, like, a part of his dual identities. Got it. So femininity is also immaturity. Thanks, Rich. That's You guys are, you guys are in real good shape now. <laughs> Sorry. I think I think Leatherface just doesn't like labels. <laughs> I think he would say he's a they at this point. No, okay, never yeah. mind. <laughs> uh, I actually, with John, you mentioned that we're going to get some kind of glimpses of, you know, a, a hair lip, some kind of. I'm going to say disfigurement, deformed, disfigurement, disfigurement. I, I, yeah, yeah, some kind of disfigurement, and and who knows psychologically what's happening with him. This whole movie has a strange relationship with disfigurement and disability. When you put together that Mm. the the hitchhiker, you know, who is, who is not actually disfigured, but is clearly suffering from some kind of mental impairment and Leatherface and Franklin, these are kind of the richest characters in the movie and the people who are, blandly attractive uh, are also blandly defined and and yeah. the, the the those people stand out the the people who are different stand out more I don't I'm, this is all just kind of kind of falling on me so it's not I'm, I'm not articulating it well but I'm just saying I'm, I, I want to look as we go through this sort of at the relationship between the movie and those ideas of disfigurement disability uh, you know what neurodivergence like what are the things that that make these characters so different because franklin does share a weird connection with all that i have two responses to that one is that just as an actor's perspective the juiciest roles in this movie are definitely those roles not the pretty normal people clearly like the roles that are most attractive to talent from a perspective of challenge and memorableness and and color and depth are clearly those roles but also i wanted to add that doesn't the hitchhiker have like uh like at least like a a, a major birthmark or something like he's he's yeah. kind of disfigured in his own way as well thematically just something to keep an eye on as we go through this although i i, I mean i don't know i maybe maybe that does originate with this to some extent but i don't know there's definitely like an, an othering like based on like physical irregularities that I think is like pretty common to, to horror. Like even if you want to go back to 
you know, Hunchback of Notre Dame and, you know, the Carlos mummy. Like, it's, you know, it's like, it's, I don't know if that's necessarily like a, a new concept. I think like the, the neurological stuff I think you're talking about is, is interesting. Well, um, but, but I think Franklin makes this kind of bridge where it's not, whereas it's, it's very much painted in a negative light uh, in, in a lot of the older examples, right? Like we equate Richard the third with being like villainous, you know what I mean? But here we get certainly, especially in, in Franklin, but to a certain extent in Leatherface, something weirdly sympathetic. And I feel like that's, that's a, a slightly different, again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to go overboard, but slightly more nuanced take on it uh, than we see in, in a lot of other portrayals of that. Again, Franklin makes this connection to me that's like it, that, that pulls all of it together in a weird way. I have no doubt, and I certainly have a strong hope, that when we do our overview episode, we will drill pretty deeply into into Leatherface, and let's keep you know talking about it. Not, not literally, but um, <laughs> you know, let's keep talking about it. But I know we will delve into into this magnificent horror movie character moving forward because he, he, he richly deserves it. And, and we should take everything into account, the history of characters like him and how he stands alone in, in, in certain ways. So, but let's move on for now. Shall we? That's John, John, that's a plus hosting right there. Will you two shut the fuck up so we can move on? please? <laughs> read you loud, read you loud and clear, buddy. I feel like the phrase is like, like we should talk about this. Not literally. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I guess I, I was, I was caught up in my own pun there, where I was like, we should drill into Leatherface, and I'm like, wait, did yeah. I say that? That's that's what I was doing there. <laughs> I'm like, no, let's not drill into Leatherface, uh, literally. Okay. Yeah, he, he you know, he, he's not in control. He, he's worried. Like I, I relate to him, like as somebody who's in a stressful situation and just feels overwhelmed, right? I, I may have uh, once in my teenage years uh, uh, had to run from uh, the police, and this, mm. this would be an accurate depiction of what I looked like when I got home. <laughs> Jesus. Checking Jack. the windows, checking the windows again, panicking, turning around, sitting down, putting my face in my hands. <laughs> licking your teeth. Yeah, licking, licking your teeth. teeth. Probably. <laughs> Ah, uh, this moon is eerie as well. well, the movie, well once, this, once this moon comes out, I feel like this movie really turns a corner in yes. terms of, like, Oh, totally agree with you. Now, like, they're frantic. Now it's no longer just a normal, everyday, like, worried situation. It's dark. And that she's Sally's laying into the horn. Their friends have been AWOL far too long for it to be something normal. And Franklin's right. They ought to go to that gas station and ask for help, but she will not leave without her boyfriend, which I understand. <laughs> I do. I do not. <laughs> oh, come on. That, 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 that volcano of human charisma, Jerry. <laughs> Please, let's not leave without him. This is her best opportunity to cut the cord on that relationship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you left me. And she's like, yeah, that's when I knew I didn't care about you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> 
I suddenly remembered your shirt, and <laughs> I just decided it wasn't working. And then your, I thought of your glasses and and your hair, and the fact that you're a complete hair. dick to my brother. <laughs> yeah. But Franklin, you know, is trying to extend his life here. I mean, he's not wrong. He might live a little bit longer if they went to that uh, gas station. But alas, he doesn't know that Jerry, that wonderful human being, left with the keys to the van. So they can't get away if they wanted to. Another recurring theme in the 2022, right? The, the, the keys. Who's got the keys? Where did they go? How do we get them? Yeah, that's true. Didn't think of that. Yeah, the siblings bickering here over this flashlight just feels very human, very relatable. Yeah, I mean, again, we've got this situation where Franklin is so aware of his disability and that if Sally leaves, he's going to be by himself. Yeah. And if she takes the flashlight, he's going to be by himself in the dark. And so what are the options? You know, I don't want to give up the flashlight. I don't want... Let it go. But if Sally goes with the flashlight, then I have to go with her. And so that train of thought really plays with me because he's so vulnerable. Well, and they have this physical altercation over it. And it just feels very, you know, human, like that they would cross all of these lines because, you know, they have that kind of relationship. And this is the kind of like crazy shit that, that can happen between siblings. So he, yeah, she's going to go off with the flashlight to search for everyone else. And, and Franklin doggedly follows because, yes, he's just that terrified of being left alone, even though it makes no logical sense. And she's right. She will not be able to push him effectively over this terrain. Well, but if you think about it, too, if she leaves and doesn't come back, Franklin, I mean, well, they don't have the keys, but it's not like Franklin can drive the car. He can't leave. He's stuck. Well, yeah. Either of them would be stuck, like, without without the keys, but he's especially well, but, stuck, right? Yeah. Yeah, she, but as I was saying, she could, she could jog back to the gas station. Yes, which she does. Yeah. yeah. So, um, a couple of points, doubling back. So, you, you know, uh, Leatherface has this hammer up until now. We have yet to see the chainsaw, right? And I think I realize it, it is a sledgehammer. It just, it looks so small in his hand because he's so big that it's easy to lose sight of that. Am I wrong? Doesn't he use the chainsaw on Kirk after he gets him on the table? Oh, yeah. Uh, you're right that uh, she, uh, Pam, witnesses him doing that. But Kirk is already dead at that point. I know, but I'm just saying you said we hadn't seen the chainsaw in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We've seen the chainsaw. You know what, Vic? This is my answer to that. Yeah. Oh, shit. I know you just want to you just want to show off because you remember Pam's name. <laughs> I hope my mic is picking up what just happened. Oh, my God. My beer went super foamy on me. I did hear the feminine terror in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> I now have a puddle of beer at my feet because of this goddamn ballast point calico that I just cracked open. And my hands are covered in beer. John, don't, don't curse the beer, okay? I think the, the beer, beer failed me. The beer is an absolute good, John. The beer is life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Everywhere God. Everywhere in its margins are the gulf. <laughs> is that a Dune reference? 
No, that's a Schindler's List reference, buddy. I went super dark. Oh, wow. The list is life. Yes, I remember that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I wanted to point out that around this point, you know, when you go from the sunset to the moon and the clouds drifting and all that, and you know that uh, Sally and Franklin are in deep trouble, one of the things that I do with this podcast is try to identify act breaks. And, you know, to the eye... If you're not looking at running time, I think that right around here was clearly the beginning of Act 3, but it's closer to the halfway point of the running time, which would make it the longest Act 3 of all time. But I I felt like normally in horror movies, the meaningful escalation is when you narrow down the characters to like one or two. And that's usually a development that you find at the transition point to a horror movie's final act. And that's exactly what we just witnessed, especially when you add in like the transition of day to night and all of that. But in this movie, we are halfway through. So I I find that really odd and untraditional. Well, it's also, John, the point at which, to, to go back to something that we talked about a lot with Mike, this is the point at which Sally figures out that she's in a slasher film. Yeah, we, we have talked about that, but I, I would argue that the moment that she definitively realizes that is coming up in a, in a few seconds here. Exactly. Uh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. So that's, that's sort of what I would identify as the second plot point or the, yeah, the second plot point. Yeah. That, the third act. No, I, I, I can't argue with that. I think that that's probably it, but it's still like much closer to the halfway point than to the last 20 minutes of this movie or even, you know, 30 minutes, I think. So no, just argue with me, John. Try. Come on. I know you want to. <laughs> As I sit in my puddle of beer. <laughs> <laughs> put a towel down next time, all right? <laughs> oh God. So before uh, I hit play, I'm I'm gonna make my comment that Leatherface has three surprise appearances in this film. And the timing is effective every time. And I think this is the second best, in my opinion, because boom, there he is, out of nowhere, bringing a weapon to bear. And I think the impact of this third one is probably multiplied by 10 if you're in the Vic and Rich camp and you've kind of gotten on board with Franklin in some way. I, I agree, and I will also say that I, I also agree that this is a really effective appearance by Leatherface. This is something, this is one of the scenes that it's always stood out to me from the first time I watched it. Like this is the moment 30 years later, I'd be like, Oh yeah, there's the scene when Kirk gets killed. And then there's this scene. Um, I would also just point out you both actually were present for this. We went to a haunted corn maze Mm -hmm. that was Mm -hmm. mostly unimpressive, except that at the end of it, there was a guy with a chainsaw. And so the whole way through the corn maze, as everyone got to the end of it, the guy would fire up the chainsaw and people would scream. And so what was most terrifying about it was that every 10 minutes, that's what you heard. And people going, ah! So it really sounded like you were marching toward your death. (laughs) And that this moment in this film is what I imagined in my head was happening <laughs> to all of those people. 
Yeah, there's something like the wild rev of a chainsaw that just tells you you're in trouble, right? Yeah. <laughs> and coming out of the coming out of the darkness, I think more than even the you know the the other kills in this film. Uh, here it comes out of the darkness. The combination of both the visual, the audio of the chainsaw, and yeah, them just in this this kind of wild dark maze. I was just gonna say honestly, like as a haunted house enthusiast, I, I I can't even think of how I would come up with a number for the number of times that I have been chased by a teenager uh, wielding a chainsaw. <laughs> But I, I would guess it's like I, I don't know if I don't know if I'd break a hundred, but I wouldn't be surprised if I was within spitting distance. So you, it's a go-to <laughs> move, is what you're saying? <laughs> oh, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that the the Kirk kill is my favorite in this movie because of just the timing and the shock, and it's the first appearance of Leatherface and all of that, yeah. and you know the kicking and the blood and all of that. I think that one's you know, more or less in a vacuum, a 10 on the scale. And I think this is, you know, an 8.5, which is pretty damn effective, but it, it falls a little bit short of it, but it's miles ahead of the Jerry kill. I, I will also say like, while I was like giving Franklin some some slack and sort of acknowledging him as a as a human character. I also my feeling at this upcoming scene was one of relief. <laughs> <laughs> you won't have to hear him whine anymore. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, well, I don't have to deal with that anymore. Yeah. I mean, with all our like revisiting and re-examining this character. Uh, aside, he is generally considered one of the more obnoxious and annoying characters in horror, or am I wrong? That's certainly my understanding. Yeah. I will take him over Shelly in Friday the 13th Part 3. I relate um, to Shelly because he's just trying to get laid, but he has a, a, a you know bad hair and he's a goofball, and he just is trying to get attention in the wrong ways. But he, he's not like... He's like chill, but let's put that aside for now. <laughs> let's not get into a whole Franklin versus Shelly thing. Yeah. Maybe, maybe okay. in. Oh, there's Leatherface! Ah! Oh, boy. Oh, man. This is kinetic. And this is where Sally first loses her mind. I don't blame her. Which she's really good at. She'll continue to demonstrate yeah. that throughout the film. She's excellent at losing her mind. She's like a champion, a star, a gold medal winner of losing her mind. It's very, very impressive. This might be more of a, a post-rap uh, commentary, but I did come across the fun fact that apparently as Franklin is being uh, cut down, literally and, and figuratively... <laughs> Uh, the, the, the blood in that scene, I guess like whatever apparatus they had was not complete. And so the, the blood in that scene is actually Toby Hooper and the costume designer, I believe, just filling their mouths with blood and spitting it at him. <laughs> That's wild. And in keeping with the lore about this production, which sounded like one of the more unpleasant productions that anyone could ever be associated with in terms of its 
comforts and the toll it took on everyone involved. But we'll get to that in the overview. Yeah. It's it's also it's sort of a shockingly long kill. Like I feel like in modern slashers, you know, he would pop out, you'd get the scary shot with the flashlight hitting him, the chainsaw would go into him and it blah, 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 you know, and there'd be a little blood splash and then we cut to Sally running away. Here, Sally screams, we go back to Leatherface, he brings the chainsaw back up, he cuts down onto him again. <laughs> He cuts, you know, he pulls it back out. He cuts down on him again. Like, it's a long kill scene. Uh, And also, as is often the case in this film, not that graphic for for all the blood being spit on Gunnar Hansen, apparently. Yeah, you you basically see nothing of Franklin. Like, you don't see what happens to him. No, it's Leatherface is the horror in this scene. Yes and no. I mean, I think if you break it down, the shots are extremely implicative of horrific violence because first he holds it aloft to bring that, you know, growling blade down on poor Franklin and it's vertical, which I think seems worse somehow that he's going to just, you know, bisect him vertically. And then he methodically saws through Franklin from multiple angles while he's flailing around and Franklin's flailing around in, in his wheelchair and there is blood, but I agree that there's, it's otherwise left to implication and the movement. We don't get gore. We don't get any like actual shots of the blade sawing through Franklin's body. We see very little of Franklin in, in this scene, except for the silhouette of his frantically waving arms. But I think it's still pretty horrifying. We know because of the, the composition, the, the series of cuts, no pun intended, again, that, that Leatherface is putting the saw through Franklin over and over again. And our imagination does a lot of the heavy lifting here, but I think it's impactful. At the same time, compared to the 2022 film or some you know other horror movies that depict chainsaw violence, yeah, I would say that this kill is, is is as minimalistic as the the legend of the film would suggest that yeah, you think you're seeing a lot more than you actually are, and I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean it's that's that's, that's kind of my point is that it's a it is a horrific kill, but what is horrific about it is in your mind's eye more than it is in the camera's lens, and that's sort of true of this movie. I think if you asked people when they left this movie in 1974, you know, how, how gory was it? They'd be like, oh, my God, it was the goriest movie I've ever seen. And yeah. then you go back and look at it. You'd be like, actually, there's nothing. It's got, it's got nothing on Herschel Gordon Lewis. Absolutely. And nice, nice callback to the first round there. But uh, <laughs> one of Rich's favorites. <laughs> Childhood favorites. <laughs> childhood favorite. Yeah, and to your point before, uh, Vic, you, you, you said that maybe this is where the movie boils down to Act 3 because now Sally's going to be alone and on the run and increasingly crazed. Yep. It's going to be a hard run for Sally from here on out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Leatherface will chase Sally through the woods for some time. And you're going to see that the terrain itself like these dense and sharp and 
terribly clawing branches, all of the hostile undergrowth does damage to her because she's wearing nothing of any protection at all. She tries to duck through it and Leatherface just kind of consistently saws through it. And one of my other observations about this sequence is that you'll find it's, it's kind of a blue dark. It's really perfect for night cinematography because it doesn't read as day for night. My eye watching it doesn't say, oh, this is daytime with a filter. Um, and yet you can pretty much clearly see what's going on. I don't know if they shot this at perfect twilight or something, or it was just lit perfectly, or they found the perfect filter, but I don't know. I think it has this awesome eerie dusk quality. We're not just watching shapes in the dark as you often are in non day for night cinematography on, on actual film from this era. I, I thought that the amount of visible detail is pretty remarkable. John, I'll agree with that. But having seen Evil Dead, I, I don't think we can describe this undergrowth as hostile. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the one thing Sally doesn't go through. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, should we hit? Anywho. Should we hit play? Um, Rich, yeah, okay. did you have anything else to say before we hit play about this? No, I'm good. All right. It, it it doesn't look like, yeah, there's any special effects here. Like, she's really getting her ass scraped up. I appreciate that Leatherface stops, like, rather than, like, run through it. Leatherface is going to use his chainsaw to, like, cut a little hole. Yeah, he doesn't like, barrel through it. Yeah, he doesn't want to get scratched up. <laughs> <laughs> He's also quite spry and mobile here. Sort of in the tradition of uh, Friday the 13th Part 2, he's not like just methodically stalking, never runs. Like, no, Leatherface will dash after you like a Clydesdale. Well, and he stays, this, this whole movie really stays sort of within the bounds of physics and reality. Like, there's yes. no teleporting in this. That was definitely something that that I feel like slashers picked up much later on as they were trying to engineer jump scares and stuff. I, and I think maybe like we could look at this further later, but uh, Michael Myers might've been the one to start that sort of uncanny ability to just appear places. So she runs up to a, a facade, the, a, a side of the house we haven't seen before. And I think the movie might be playing the game that you're like wondering, oh, maybe this is a different house instead of just the other side of their house. Fascinating that their front door was open, but they're like literally just open, but their back door is locked. Yeah. Yeah. She finds her way to the front door <clears throat> and apparently locks it because he feels the need to chainsaw through it, which I question. I, I do too. To your own house. Yeah. Was that really the only way he was getting in there to his own house? You know, you got the chainsaw. You may as well. Well, <laughs> I, I agree. It's like when, when your only tool is a chainsaw. What does he think the cook is going to do though? When he comes home to that, you know, Sally races upstairs and it, the house looks normal enough until she gets to grandpa's room. And there's nothing normal about that at all. We see Grandma is doing a lot worse than he is. She's decomposed to a little more than bone. We see her front teeth are missing. I noticed her hair isn't gray for what it's worth. 
So maybe this isn't grandma. I don't know. There's also a dead pet here as well. I, I think that to call any of this taxidermy would be overly kind, but um, they like to keep their dead with them, very literally, in this family. Can I say that Grandma seems like a, a callback to Psycho a little bit? Oh. That's one of the thoughts that I have of the, the matriarch preserved as a corpse in a chair. It uh, feels very much like the, the climax of Psycho. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Agreed. Yeah. I, I mean, they don't really uh, give her a narrative. And, you know, they don't... Uh, the remaining family members don't pay tribute to her in any way. Well, they, they, they certainly do in the second one. Uh, well, she looks a lot different in that one, doesn't she? That's a different corpse. I mean, if you want to keep any continuity between these films... <laughs> I would, I would, yeah, yeah. Like I, I would honestly think that if you want to say that that corpse is not this corpse, that maybe that grandma is somewhere else and this one is whatever she is, you know, that, like ma maternal grandmother, paternal grandmother. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I also, I have to say that after the initial shock of watching this movie for the first time, the more I watch it now, the more sort of obvious Grandpa's mask is. Mm -hmm. It's 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 lost some of the shock value as I look at it now and just think, oh, God, yeah, no, it, it sort of feels, of all the effects in this movie, it feels sort of plainly uh, plastic. Rubbery, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah. Or at the very least, like, placed over a real person's face much the same way that Leatherface's does it's just that Leatherface's gets by because it's it's purporting itself to be a mask just placed over another person's face yeah yeah there there are definitely a couple shots where I, I wouldn't say it's like you know embarrassing but you kind of you do get the sense of the uh, the skin under the eyes of the actor being visible through the eye holes of the mask so, yeah, not not perfect and without seams, but I don't I don't think it's terrible either. I will say this this might be my failing, but I think that on more than one occasion have I read a synopsis of this movie only to realize after the fact that this is grandpa that sh shows up at dinner. Like I frequently have seen this and I think just like not connected that like when this character shows up later, that this is the same person who was in the, the attic or wherever space it is that she's in right now. That is definitely your own failing. <laughs> okay. Well, at least now I know. <laughs> no, it's the el other elderly man in a black suit. <laughs> Again, maternal grandfather paternal grandfather they've got two grandparents folks okay <laughs> keep them straight rich <laughs> not, not <Miss> Texas. <laughs> <laughs> wow we love you texas keep listening <laughs> so rich you thought this was like another corpse no, I think there's there's just enough daylight between this scene and the other scene that like I there's so much going on in this room that it, it reads like the chicken bone room to me where it's just like, oh yeah, okay, corpses, rooms, taxidermized, 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 yeah. whatever. 
taxidermy animals. Like, I, I don't know. Like, it's just like, it's all kind of like a wash. And when Grandpa shows up later, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, it's the guy from that room. Yeah, that's fair. He certainly looks dead when we meet him here. Oh, she plunges out the window to escape Leatherface. Her go-to it's, a, it's a great final girl moment. Absolutely. Like, well, she's characterized for me among final girls as having just like the most dogged will to survive and like endurance and ability to absorb punishment of, of almost anyone. I'm going to think about that, but yes, I, she's, she's got to be top five, uh, without, uh, w- without thinking about it any further. Maybe we should put that as a category in the, uh, the the stabbies or the slashies or whatever we're calling them the awards remember the tobies that was fun that was fun she's smashing through these branches again leatherface gamely and doggedly pursues her oh yeah you know and i noticed like previously both the the victims were like very much just caught unawares and also invading his territory. This is the first kill where he's like, Oh, she's leaving. That's not good enough. Like he's, he's going to run her to ground. He's, he's a hunter here. He's not just defending their property. I'm just thinking you're in, you're an editor and you've got all this footage and you're like, wait a minute. She's running in the dark through tree branches to escape Leatherface again, but like, what's the difference? This time, the the back of her shirt's cut. <laughs> Otherwise, are you distinguishing this scene from the previous scene? Very true. Well, I just think this this sort of connects with the the stuff we were talking about after Leatherface kills Jerry, where you see that he's sort of panicked. Who else? Where are all these kids coming from? Who else is coming? And so, yes, like he is now determined to sort of venture out and find the rest of these people. Mm-hmm. There's some nice tracking shots that kind of like as they approach the gas station that actually sort of elevate the uh, the bargain basement uh, filmmaking uh, that you see throughout the scene. I don't, I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just very, very sort of gritty and grassroots. But there is sort of like a nice like sliding tracking shot that adds some some dynamics to this chase scene, especially as they approach this building. It also paints just geographically a picture where the gas station wasn't that fucking far. Like when they were trying to figure out what to do, Franklin's really right. They really should have just gone to the gas station. I know. <laughs> she, got there, she got there at a dead sprint. It seems like she got there in 45 seconds. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's a little compressed, but but I'm yeah, sure, I'm sure it's a little compressed, but still, like the geography the movie's laying out says, she went from that house to here really fast. It was not an hour, you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So one of the thoughts I had, like trying to again, like compare this to the latest Texas Chainsaw movie in some ways, because I I think it's worthy of thought, if nothing else, that you could see how this woman would go on to become a Texas Ranger and live a long life, I think, because she's hard to kill and she's not going to lie down and die. She just has so much toughness and constitution and stamina 
So that's the hardcore survival instincts are, are clearly established. But I also thought comparing it to that movie, Sally in that movie, the new one, seems markedly older than Leatherface. But you don't get that sense in this movie at all. She seems really young here. And how much younger could he be? I, I don't think he reads as a teenager. I, I might buy that she could be 23 to 25 and he's 19 or 20 at the very youngest. But I think even that's a stretch. John, I just think if we, if we took apart uh, everything that you just said, we could find the title of at least three Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. <laughs> <laughs> definitely heard Hard to Kill in there. Yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> I don't know if Bloodsport came out, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> you're not I mean, wrong look, the, the fact of Leatherface's face means it's really hard to determine exactly how old he is right um, but I agree yeah you're going to get by 2022 you're going to get some age disparity I, I don't think you're going to get a guy as girthy as this dude at, at like you know the teen years he, he seems to have that kind of weight of yeah, he lives on brisket, human or otherwise, but um and he's still, you know, spry and young, runner, but John, I don't know, man. Have you you again, Texas. You've been to I'm, a uh, Texas I'm, high school football game? I was gonna say, man, like I've I've grown up in Texas. I've seen some girthy teenagers. <laughs> yeah, and suddenly I'm thinking about football and uh-huh. Um that does that does compute. Can you imagine if only Leatherface had lived in a, in a football town instead of a, a slaughterhouse town? He'd just be an all-pro offensive lineman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if only he had that outlet. If only they just let them hit, you know? They could hit each other. Bubba Sawyer, Muerto County High School. I could just see his his announcement on the on the you know pregame uh, yeah. headshots. Yeah, Key and Peel. Exactly like the Key and yeah. Peel sketch. The blind side two. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's fun to think about. But. Um, yeah, I mean, did you guys have any thoughts about the idea that he's so relentless here? You know, even though she's not easy prey, he's not giving up. He's proactive. What What do you think is 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 going on there? I mean, I think Vic, you kind of alluded to the fact that you you think maybe he he thinks if if he gets this one, like no one else will show up. But I just think it's different from the other scenarios. He's clearly abused, right? Yeah. And so I think that the first two people, you know, come in, they've, like you said, it's a home invasion thing. Who are these strangers in my house? I'm going to kill them. Bam. I understand that. The third guy shows up and, you know, in 30 minutes later, an hour later, two hours later, whatever it is, he has to go, wait, who the fuck are all these people? Like, who keeps coming in here? So now he's got to figure it out. So I feel like dad's going to be super pissed if somebody gets away. And so I, this, mm -hmm. this feels to me motivated by, you know, whatever I did with the other, with the other kids, I can't let anyone escape. I can't let there be any witnesses. 
this has to, you know, I have to get everybody. And again, it feels motivated by when you see these later family scenes, he's going to get it. You know, he's going to get beaten. He's going to get his ass kicked if he doesn't, if he doesn't clean this up as best he can. That's true. And the cook does ask him, did you get them all? And he says, yes, 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 I did. You know, so you're right. Yeah. She's a loose end. He recognizes that. Yeah. And he's hot on her heels as she turns that corner, but he pulls back when she goes around the building and into this side door uh, to the apparent refuge of the gas station. I immediately Can I get you some barbecue, ma'am. Yeah, <laughs> we see the barbecue in the background. The cook immediately gets like real handsy with her, as you'll see, as he's like comforting her and everything. I mean, he's like touching her arms, her face. He's like her hair, you know, like uh, that's. I it struck me as a little much, a little weird. Not not in like a bad like a. Um, inauthentic way, but just like a, a little warning sign about this, this cat. I'm a little jealous of their grilling area though. That looks, that looks pretty nice. What do you, what do you guys call that? You guys know all about this. Like what is that open air, like room over there that they're. It's just a pit. A That's pit. A big ass pit. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's a technical term. Big ass pit. <laughs> so he's promising her, he's going to get the truck. Just take it easy. Like laying, still laying hands on her. And she's don't leave the, fucking door open though yeah <laughs> right and you can just see she's like she's already in extreme shock and trauma just twitching incredible performance so believable and you never see this level of extremity in horror movies you know like this sort of deranged level of terror and trauma like 99 percent of actresses in movies just don't even attempt it you get this close-up of the barbecue, too. And it's disquieting. Really start, yeah, you really you can't really tell, but you could tell she's kind of looking at it going, wait, this doesn't look quite right. Yeah, there's something off about the meats. And we get a recap of the previous radio uh, performance, like on the radio, uh, their uh, report, not performance. And... But we get again that the sheriff is linking it to something absurd, like some West Coast jewel thieves or something, uh, which I think, again, is one of the more cynical aspects of this movie, that for whatever reason, the sheriff has no clue. Okay. <laughs> I well, love... Wait, I want, uh-huh. I'm sorry. I just want to point out that in Texas, they blame everything on California. Yeah. like Again, that like everything, all evils come from outside of Texas. You you can read it that simply, but I, I, I kind of also just think that if we don't have any leads, just, you know, point out of town because they don't have any evidence at all and they're lost and incompetent, clearly, because it's all happening right before their eyes. So the cook comes in with this shit-eating grin and a large burlap sack in his hands. This is our first big taste of crazy from him. And Sally, like, slowly registers the sack and the rope he's unraveling and asks, her, asks him, like, what are you doing? And, you know, it's pretty rough in the sense of, like, the out of the frying pan and into the fire kind of a, kind of a way that there's just, 
everywhere she turns, there's no refuge or safety. And I, I think like the first time you watch this movie, it's pretty hard to like really suss out immediately and like roll your eyes that that this gas station and this guy is is part of it. I think it's a pretty goddamn effective twist. Reminds me of Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Like the, those 70s paranoia films where everywhere you turned, someone was in on it. Now, this is kind of the only twist we get like that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's it's pretty effective in it. But it's not something that was so unusual in 1974 to find in a, you know, in a thriller. Yeah, the whole Watergate era and all of that kind of contributed to a real sense of paranoia. You're right, in the culture. I just want to say that, John, you really did that justice there. I think that the the line uh, that the cook comes in with a shit-eating grin and a burlap bag in his hand sounds like the opening verse of a Bob Dylan song. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, yes. And, and, and way to put it in, in, into a different perspective. That's great. <laughs> so everything she's been through, like... The fact that this guy is, he's always telling her, oh, just cooperate. We'll have no trouble. She picks up a knife. He's trying to talk her down while grabbing the broomstick, knocks it out of her hand and starts relentlessly beating her with the broom. He's, he's having fun. Like that's a, yeah. that, that's, a weird development in this movie. Like he's enjoying himself. I don't think Leatherface, like no. maybe Leatherface, gotten caught up in the moment, but he wasn't doing this for entertainment. Well, the interesting thing, like the spectrum of these three characters in the family, is that this guy, the cook, enjoys it, but is kind of ashamed and guilty about enjoying it, but he can't help himself. Right? I keep getting that vibe. Like he's sort of like. He, he, he thinks he's above them and he's not nasty and cruel and sadistic and he doesn't want to hurt people, but he kind of does. Whereas I think the, the hitchhiker like actually has sadism in him and he's not embarrassed about it. And meanwhile, Leatherface, yeah, it's just sort of a means to an end. Like maybe there's some thrill of the hunt for him, you know, but Generally speaking, Leatherface is just doing what he has to do and is is even more freaked out by that than the cook is. I disagree with that, John. I mean, yeah. I, I, I see some of those nuances, but in general, I think the idea of this movie is that working in a slaughterhouse taught this whole family to enjoy killing. You know, that it became not just a, a, a means to an end, a way of making a living, something that they actually enjoyed, yeah. uh, especially if they were doing it the old fashioned way. With well, there, but there's, but there's a big difference between killing and like pursuing and tormenting. Like there's a, there's a lot of shades in here. Yeah. I, I first off, I don't see Leatherface ever take pleasure in killing in this movie. So I'll say that right off the bat. And I will say that we're about to, in the next, you know, the next half an hour or whatever's left of this movie, see the cook express, I think genuine disquiet with the the dirty work. So I, I, I agree with you uh, in regards to the hitchhiker, but not the other two characters. No, I don't. Even though like this guy has a latent 
sadism. There's no question. And it's humorously shown as he's driving his truck and simultaneously trying to like calm her down while enjoying hitting her with the broomstick, even though she's not really making any noise or fighting back or all she's doing is kind of softly whimpering. And he, he keeps poking her with that because he sort of like can't help himself is kind of how I'm reading it. When he's, he's, he's sort of laughing too. No, again, I agree. I mean, sadism is the, the order of the day here. But you don't and see any he, conflict in him, like that, that he's sort of embarrassed about it or like, uh, you know, there's a duality to him. I mean, he's certainly aware of the the societal regulations against, you know, the, the societal rules against this in a way that Leatherface and the Hitchhiker aren't. Uh, but I also don't think there's any question that he's enjoying this. You're not getting it, man. Let's pause it for a second. Because I, I really think 104.24, that he's like almost schizophrenic in the old sense of the, of the term here. He's eager, like he's in a hurry to get her home. This is a treat. And he starts chatting with her. It's like his version of a normal conversation. He'll complain about the cost of electricity with her as if they were companions and he's not abducting her, that it's not you know, victim and, and, and victimizer. But I, I, his MO is not just to bash her brains in or chainsaw him. And I think that her, and I think that Leatherface would have killed her immediately if, if he'd had the chance. I think that, that the cook is vacillating in a bizarre way, a mentally ill way between comforting her and, and violently, you know, trying to keep her quiet by poking her and enjoying that. But I think he's playing both sides of the fence and um, it's, he has an inner conflict about this. And I think you will see very clearly down the stretch that he doesn't want to be the one to kill her. And you know, he's ambivalent about that. I think I disagree with that, John, but let's keep watching and, and okay. I want to see, I want to, I want to watch the performance more closely to see how it plays out. All right. Well, I look forward to your apology. <laughs> I fucking hate you, John. God damn it. You know, he's like, we'll, we'll be over this in a bit. Hang on. And then he sees that the hitchhiker is just coming home. He's been out hunting, I guess. He's been busy. He's got something in a sack. Staggling home, staggering home like the half wit that the cook calls him little coon shits. <laughs> I call my son the same thing. That's fair. Yeah. We should all call our our kids a nap haired idiot. <laughs> so if you're if you're listening to this somewhere in the distant future, just know I I'm kidding. I don't actually call you that. Just Roland. <laughs> So we get that the cook told them to stay away from the graveyard and he's pissed at the risk and the attention that either the hitchhiker or Bubba, uh, I mean, obviously the hitchhiker is directly involved. We have some debate over whether Bubba was involved at all, but the hitchhiker was posing these bodies in the graveyard and the cook knows about it and is angry because it's, you know, putting a target on their backs. They go down their rutted country road cool shot with the headlights zooming into the foreground out of focus. You see this just chaotic, violent 
state that is the norm for this family. Lots of beatings. The cook constantly showing his higher status in the hierarchy. It is a, a distinctly masculine place, right? Grandma's dead. We don't know who mom is. I just mm-hmm. shudder to speculate at that. Uh, that this is this is a, a house dominated by these mentally ill men. Yes, it, it's a frat house. This is basically <laughs> a frat house. We've from Canadian sorority houses to a Texas frat house. <laughs> Oh, man. Send me to Canada right now. And the hitchhiker ties Sally to an arm that, uh, sorry, to a chair that has like fresh human arms for armrests, barely decomposed. Pretty disturbing. And he reacts in, in pleased shock to see that it's Sally that he recognizes under the burlap sack that the cook put on her head. Yeah, let's pause it here as you watch the cook berate Leatherface at 107.14. And this is what I was alluding to before. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe you guys aren't seeing this, but it seems like Leatherface gear shifts into a traditionally feminine persona for this portion of the film. Uh, I don't know if he's put his makeup on yet, but he's put on a wig that I think we must characterize as a woman's wig and he's acting in a certainly there's not a lot of testosterone um, coming out of his body language. And it seems like he's in sort of homemaker mode and he's going to perform the traditional role of preparing dinner or something is, is the vibe I'm getting as the cook gets home. What sort of speaks to what I was saying uh, John, that that there is no woman of the house, right? Yes. Somebody has to fill that role. Leatherface doesn't go anywhere; he stays home. You know, the That's the, right. the hitchhiker, the 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 cook goes out and makes money, and the hitchhiker goes out and fucks around in the graveyard. But Leatherface stays there and takes care of the house. It's fucked up, but he takes care of the house. Not only that, I think that the cook berates the hitchhiker for leaving Leatherface behind uh, earlier, a bit earlier, where he says something along the lines of, you're not supposed to leave your brother alone at home. So that has a bunch of implications to unpack. But apparently, you know, even the hitchhiker is not supposed to be roaming around. And part of the reason why is to keep an eye on Leatherface. I've only really like kind of gotten this this surface level <clears throat> commentary from Toby Hooper like about this film. I know that's like some of his his intents about it, but there there's definitely something here that is they're trying to recreate the nuclear family, mm. especially heading into this dinner, which which then in its you know in its own right is sort of this like mockery of like the traditional you know like. Norman Rockwell American family dinner, you know, where it's like everyone kind of sits down to like the, the, the big feast. Um, and so, yeah, to me, like that's what is going on, at least with regards to Leatherface assuming this role is that 
that's what they what they want. It's like there there is a, a strange compulsion to sort of be this like all American family uh, to these people for all of their you know deeply you know bizarre and and pathological tendencies. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like they have this compulsion to follow in what in their approximation of kind of traditional societal norms. And that kind of demands the role that Leatherface is willingly or probably unwillingly cast into, which is this kind of matronly, timid, cowardly, cowering role, subordinate, but at the same time, you know, he knows kind of where his freedoms are and his value is, and he's he's gonna play that that part in the family because he 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 recognizes the absence of it or the value of it. Well, and also that they they do sort of revere the patriarch and to whatever extent a corpse can be revered, the matriarch of the family, right? Yeah. But that is, this This dinner is very much about, here, we're going to honor you, granddad, show them how it's done. And there's also, of course, this sort of sick parody of just having company over for dinner. And the cook certainly kind of goes through the motions of that with Sally. Whereas, like, clearly Leatherface is incapable of any kind of hospitality, uh, in vocal terms and the hitchhiker like is just absolutely here to bully and taunt and torment Sally. Like he's, he, he's like the, the shitty teenager in the family, the complete like asshole who has been, because he's low man on the totem pole and disempowered, like his whole identity is just to enjoy shit rolling downhill is kind of the vibe I get from the hitchhiker. John, I'm still not sold on uh, the cook as, as anything other than a pure sadist, but I, you are, you are swaying me on Leatherface's sort of feminist, feminine, feminine role in this family. Well, good, but yeah, you haven't seen my evidence yet as far as far as the cook goes. So, I'll take that as in- encouraging. And a couple more notes before we hit play. I just wanted to to mention that um the hitchhiker's reaction to 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 it being Sally who the who the cook brings home, like there's a couple of implications of it to me. One, when he first like is aware that there's a girl in 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 the car, um, it, it suggests that like their dinner guest is not so much of a special occasion that it should be treated with any more import than unloading groceries or bringing in takeout dinner from the vehicle, as far as the hitchhiker is concerned, and uh, the fact that the cook didn't tell him that you know he'd found this girl like it's just accepted as if like you just shrug if a hunter brought home any kind of game like a deer or a pheasant 
And so when the, when the, when the hitchhiker is surprised that it's a girl he met that day, you know, it's, it's just like, Oh yeah, of course he grabbed a girl from somewhere. Oh wow. That's kind of weird. It's one that I saw five hours ago. It's, it's creepy in, in a lot of ways. And one more thing, Leatherface, like clearly as he's quote unquote communicating with his family members, you get proof that he can't use his words. He has at best a pigeon English that cannot be uh, translated to subtitles. There's a lot of pointing <laughs> and you just kind of realize that, uh, yeah, he, he does not have, it's not a choice. I think it's fairly clear that the power of, of speech is just not uh, in his toolbox. The uh, the subtitle, it, as he's trying to explain to the yeah. book what's going on, is leather Leatherface explaining. Right, you're right. Yeah, that's where yeah. that's where we're paused, and he's pointing and just mumbling gibberish. And yeah, there's not any real. Uh, this is not like Billy making his phone calls in Black Christmas where if you look at the subtitles, like there, there are all the words. No, it's, there really isn't a discernible language being used by Leatherface here. Well, and, and in terms of the, the bridge that the, the slasher subgenre takes, right? We, it's not psycho. It's not peeping Tom. It's not black Christmas. Is this the first sort of speechless, galoot that we get that we will then see in Halloween and Friday the 13th. I would Mm -hmm. argue that there are obviously, as we've discussed with um, John Carpenter, literally being inspired by black Christmas to do Halloween, that that film shares more DNA with that. Halloween shares more DNA with black Christmas than it does with this movie. But I think that that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has a a ton, and that's one of the key pieces of DNA that it shares with future slasher films. It's pretty debatable, like if we were going to say which one of these two films actually has more, uh, you know, fingerprints or more influence cast a greater shadow on future slasher films than the other. But I will say that I'm working on an article, Vic, that I will be sharing with you soon that is about Black Christmas's role, and I can't help but compare it to this film. So it's something I've been thinking about, but let's let's maybe put that aside for now. Sweet. I'm looking forward to that, John. Awesome. Awesome. Rich, do you want to weigh in before we hit play? Just that, well, two things. One of them is that, yeah, you're definitely latching on both this and Black Christmas are, and this more so. But you're right, that is really a push towards a full, like, full-on anonymity to the point where, like, the slasher becomes such a blank slate at some point that the only direction to go by the mid-'80s is, like, parody. Because, like, you're pushing so far to, like, hiding these characters, like, behind a mask and not giving them any sort of, like, words or personality. You slow down the, the, the speed at which they walk. 
Like, I don't know, you, mm-hmm. you point out an interesting idea that this is sort of like the beginning of like the degradation of character in terms of the, the slasher, which I think eventually in some ways kind of capsizes the, the genre overall. Wow. Um, you know, although it takes it quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting point that we should dig into as we, you know, make our final assessments, both of this film Friday and the, and the genre as a whole, because one of the interesting things about Leatherface specifically is that this really, this character in this particular movie does seem to represent the bridge where we get like, part of the psychological nuance and realism of Anthony Perkins in psycho and the peeping Tom guy and Billy in, you know, the movie, the same year, black Christmas, but he's also starting to take on that sort of inscrutable inhuman masked, uh, lumbering, mysteriousness that the slasher film killers would generally, uh, uh, you know, that mantle would become very, very indispensable to the slasher film killer quickly enough. And he has a humanity that Jason never has and a, a vulnerability that Freddie never has and so on and so forth. So he really is kind of the the hybrid, the ultimate amalgamation of things that we associate with the hulking, lumbering, faceless, mute killer, but then also, you know, certain key insights to a much more vulnerable, real, human psychology that previous killers and killers outside the slasher genre tend to have. But none of the, and I think part of what I really like about this film, none of the giallo kind of whodunit feeling, right? Like that's even when we talk about Black Christmas, you can definitely feel that sort of influence on it. This movie is not playing that game. This movie has its own, you know, it sort of pushes that influence to the side and pulls in all this other stuff. I I would argue that rightly or wrongly or for better or for worse, as you and we all, the three of us have encountered in our deep dive of slasher movies, the whodunit aspect is more prevalent than it's not, you know? And and I, I think, you know, it would be fair to say that the whodunit element is outside of Halloween and and Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street tends to be a fairly dominant element. And and so this film not going that route is sort of the you know the less the path less traveled really. Certainly when it was made, I agree. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think it's better for it. Well, which is again not to take anything away from Dario Argento and 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 certainly from Black Christmas because I think that was one of the better elements of it. But yeah, it's uh, this film succeeds in large part because it's not interested in that part of the of the slasher genre. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's not my favorite aspect of the slasher genre, for sure. 
that import from Giallo. Okay. Don, are you, are you saying you didn't like the reveal in Scream 2? Because <laughs> I thought that was a masterclass in screenwriting. <laughs> Uh, we'll have to do our spoiler episode of Scream Truths, Scream Two someday because uh, I, th- I think clearly we're we're not done with that movie in our in our own minds. <laughs> I, feel like vir- I feel like we virtually did. We came as close as you could. Yeah. To that without actually talking about it. I think, yeah, it, I think now, right. it now exists exclusively as a punchline on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just just say Lori Metcalf, and we know what yeah. you mean. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Lori Metcalf. A national fucking treasure, okay? It's not Lori Metcalf's fault. So Leatherface is explaining and pointing and pleading and cowering. And yes, this is where the cook is making sure that he's killed all of them. And he's disappointed in in Leatherface. And, he, you know, yeah, he has to take it on out on him for ruining the door, which I think, again, is somewhat legitimate. And we cut back to... <laughs> <laughs> not that he should beat him with a broom, but you know what I mean. And, well, and, not, and, and not, for, not for murdering all those teenagers. <laughs> like the fucking door? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the hitchhiker binds up uh, poor Sally in this chair with human arms as armrests and runs upstairs to get grandpa and the cook now, okay, watch this carefully Vec now. So the, the, the cook is like reassuring her and telling her he's going to fix her some supper. And at least part of him, you know, is, is at least trying to calm her down, even though there's no reason to do that, she's under control. But that's, yeah, this isn't really getting to the heart of my point. But he's at least playing this game that he's still going to be a good host and get her something to eat and so on. So uh, we have no reason to believe that there have been any other recent victims, only grave robbing. There's fresh arms on the chair. Are those the arms of one of her friends? That is a distinct possibility, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it crossed my mind. It very well could be. Like Kirk's, for example, because of the chainsaw sequence. I definitely had that thought when we saw the arms on there. Mm-hmm. I was going to say some of the the camera work and the camera angles uh, when she's strapped to that chair, and I think you're going to see more of this going forward. But you know, the the uh, we talked about the cinema cinematography up to this point. It's lovely. It's well composed and all this stuff. It gets really fucking bizarre right here. Like as the movie takes a turn, the camera work takes a turn. And I think it's really effective. This like the second one, this part of the movie makes me kind of nauseous. Mm -hmm. But I think it's this is for a very contained amount of period, whereas the whole of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 makes me want to vomit. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the the synchronicity of editing score and cinematography in this film are are second to none in the way that they all work together to create those kinds of impacts on the audience. So, yeah, the guys bring bring, uh, Grandpa downstairs because somebody had the idea, I think it was the hitchhiker, that he should be the one, Grandpa should kill her. 
which is interesting that, you know, as sadistic as the hitchhiker is, he, he wants to see Grandpa do it when it's fairly obvious Grandpa has not killed anyone recently. And it's so ghoulish the way they slit her finger open to draw blood and that, and that, that sucking on her bloody finger does revive Grandpa. It, it, it definitely gives him like a Red Bull burst of energy. <laughs> red Bull gives you wings, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, this bull is red. Oh, and he, you uh-huh. see his little hands moving around. It's so delightfully creepy as, as Grandpa uh, savors the flavor. <laughs> yeah, the insanity goes off the hook right here. We still have the generator whirring in the moon. But everything is out of focus, and the score is going bananas. And yeah, we're just we're 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 in hell. We're in a nightmare. And she passed out apparently at some point because she starts to regain consciousness, tied to this unholy chair. It's funny. I can't think of specifics, but I do feel like the whole dinner scene felt like something that we just saw repeated in incredibly lesser versions uh, yeah. throughout the session. Absolutely agree with you. If you think about the ending of Hell Night, I think, don't we see in this subterranean layer all the corpses posed around a table yeah. in this the same kind of mockery of a, a family dinner scene? There is a, a, a pretty similar analogous scene that suggests this kind of inner life for that killer. Let's pause it here on this uh, lamp uh, one twelve, twenty-eight. Where yes, you have a human face with stitched, closed eyes and a mouth, and you know strands of hair that uh, is encompassing some kind of light fixture. We previously saw a skeleton with a light in its rib cage. There's just such an incredible, I think, art direction in this film production design in the design of these things that, yeah, I don't know if it came straight from Ed Gein or what, but they're so convincing. And this is, uh, I want to hear Rich's perspective on this. I think this is a clear advantage of this film versus the second movie, because these ghoulish pieces of furniture and fixtures, the, the movie has fun with it, but I think it feels handcrafted and grounded and real. Whereas in the sequel, you get a lot of this stuff and it's creative, but it just screams studio to me. It just, it, it, the second movie's lair and all of its accoutrement are more like a fantasy land, a nightmare realm. Sure. Like nightmare before Christmas, but not realistic, you know? I was just going to say, like, I mean, the, for, for one, it's like, you. I mean, you're, you're not stepping out into metaphor. Like, isn't it literally in a theme park? Yeah. In part two? I mean, like, there, there's something there's something that is deliberately cartoonish about part two in general. Um, but certainly their lair in particular is is sort of meant to, like, kind of evoke this, like, you know, cotton candy fueled, like, nightmare um, whereas this is obviously trying to kind of get to a more, you know, literally down home, um, 
you know, kind of like homegrown kind of terror. So, uh, yeah, I mean, clearly, I mean, I, I think that the, I think that they have two totally different goals, honestly. I can't argue with that because the tangible verisimilitude of this house and the family's creations are intended to be persuasive and convincing. And as Toby Hooper and company approached the second movie, you know, they had to think, well, what are we going to do? How, how do we, uh, how do we proceed from that point? And I do think it's an entirely legitimate choice and very much in concert and in sync with many other creative decisions of that film just to amp it up to a, a more surreal level and a more, I guess you could say, horror comedy kind of level that 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 does stand apart from this. And I'm not going to say that it doesn't work in the context of that movie at all, but when you're just kind of looking at this as horror and being really unsettling and, and all of that, like I think that obviously to me, this is a lot more disturbing and scary and so, and more realistic. So I just want to point that out, but I, I can't disagree that like they had a vision in the second movie and it made sense and they realized it. Hey guys, can, can we hit, I, I don't want to look at this face lamp. Yeah, you do. Anymore. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> Give me out, man. Uh, okay. The longer but. he looks, the more it looks like his face to him. Oh, God. <laughs> it looks like my mother's face, Rich, okay? <laughs> it kind of does look like a woman, but anyway. Five, four, three, two, and one. You act like a pack of hounds. The cook says, we were just having fun. (laughs) So, okay. He says, you think this is a party? The cook does. All right. This is one of those little indicators. And she appeals to him directly. You can stop them. You can make them stop because he's the rational one. Right. And he says, the cook says, can't be helped young lady. And, you know, she's like, you can't let them kill me. And, you know, cause she knows like this is his own, her only shot. And the, and the cook, like, addresses it. But meanwhile, like, Leatherface is kind of fucking with her in a, in a really disturbing way. And he's putting her, his hand over her face, or is that... Uh, no, that's... Yeah, that's Leatherface's hand. Playing with her hair, and she's just going ballistic and pleading with the cook to make them stop as they are just taunting and toying. And, and this is where, like, there's some insubordinate behavior from the hitchhiker, like, dismissing the cook. Like, he can't save you. And he says, like, you know, me and Leatherface do all the work. And this is where we get the first use of the word Leatherface, of course. He says, you know, you're just the cook. And, yeah, this mini rebellion shows the hitchhiker's disquiet and, or discontent. All right. There it is. I just don't take no pleasure in killing. Vic, did you think that was insincere or not? What I will say is that I think he is a a product killer and not a process killer. He doesn't enjoy the killing, but he likes what comes from the killing. That's okay. still, still... I mean, I'm not saying he's on the verge of, like, leaping up and stabbing the hitchhiker and and sending her free. I'm not saying that at all. 
But I'm saying that he genuinely like doesn't have the stomach for it and feels somewhat conflicted and remorseful that this is where this girl is going to end up. I don't know. I don't know that that's my read either. Like if anything, I'd say that his character is in denial. Like he's like, 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 like you said, you phrased it earlier that he thinks he's better than them, but that's the thing is that he seems to think he's better than them, but he's not. And he's, he's still going to cook her. Like, yeah, so Leatherface and the other one and, and the hitchhiker are the ones who enjoy the killing. But Wait, I, now, Vic, you honestly, you told me an hour ago that he enjoys the killing. That's what we're debating. I, he's, are you right? Okay. He's a sadist. <laughs> I think he enjoys, I think he enjoys the power. But I, I again, I think it's, it's, it's a, a product uh, he 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 enjoys what comes after the killing, not the physical murder itself. Well, without question, I would say that the Leatherface and Stretch relationship in the second movie is far deeper and more profound in regards to the character honestly wanting to see the Leatherface character wanting to see everything work out okay for the girl. Like I am not arguing that in any way, shape or form here, but I am saying that there is sort of a reluctance to the cook's participation in what he knows is inevitable. That's all. I don't, I don't know that it's more or less interesting or, you know, what we should make of it. But I, I simply think that each of these three characters has a different relationship with violence and with killing. That's all I, I've been saying, you know. All right. Well, I'll, I'll fight you in the parking lot later. But your, your point is well taken. All right. So her night of horror continues. And one of the, yeah, by far the, mo- the greatest woman in peril performances I've ever seen the just absolute go for broke intensity of Marilyn Burns here blows me away. Oh man, this editorial sequence of her eyes where they're yeah. like, yeah, mocking hers. Yeah. Oh God. The rolling of the eyes, the madness in her eyes and the screaming and, and, and the hitchhikers mocking her. And, and, and this is where, yeah, the dark side is starting to, the, the cook is succumbing to his dark side and kind of enjoying it, um, even though he feels somewhat, you know, um, awkward about it. It's interesting, though. There have been, like, no shots of Leatherface. Yeah. Room, but it's all the cook and the hitchhiker. I find that kind of interesting as well. We they see him keep, soon. They but. keep Leatherface's mask sort of off screen. Like, you get you get mm-hmm. bits of it, but they don't linger on it much. Yeah, you're right. And he has a different, uh, he put on a different wig at this point, I think. Yeah, he has a, well, he certainly has like all the like smeared makeup on his face. Maybe he comes out later with another wig. I know he switches wigs at some point. Yeah, all right. So did you see that? Like the cook's like, well, get on with it. I won't have this. Like he doesn't like that they're tormenting her. At this point, he's just like, just put her out of her misery. You know, I mean, except that he was laughing 10 seconds ago, but I told you he's like part of him enjoys it, but he doesn't feel great about that part of him. That's all. That's all I'm saying. And yeah, we're working up to the idea that they're going to position. Yeah, maybe this is where the hitchhiker has the idea that uh, the grandpa should finish her off. 
He was just enjoying tormenting her before that. An incredible series of shots here between the eyeballs and the, her, you know, wild panic and horror. Cook says, now you just hush. It won't hurt none. <laughs> the editing is just so distinct from everything we've seen up to this point, too. I mean, that's kind of the point I was making earlier. Is mm-hmm. that this really does feel like a descent into madness. Yeah. And it feels it it feels like the camera has gone insane. Yeah, like after being like such a, a the more methodical long shots through most of the film, suddenly we're in this like just tons of quick shots and it just creates this sense of chaos and insanity. So yeah, they drag her over to the this bucket that they expect her to bleed out from her head after grandpa's once killed a hundred steer in one day or something. And he was the greatest ever. And, you know, like all three of these guys, I think have some hope that, that the grandpa is still what he used to be. I think. And it's, you know, it's so darkly comic as Leatherface keeps putting this little hammer in his hand and, and, and grandpa cannot hold it. And just keeps dropping this hammer, drops it into the bucket. Leatherface like patiently keeps handing the hammer to her as the him as uh, the hitchhiker holds Sally over this as she's struggling wildly and very convincingly. She she maintains this pitch, yeah, for, of, of sort of absolute freak out for so long. It really is impressive. And you can see that he, she, he deals her a, at least a glancing blow. She's bleeding from the scalp now, which is horrible. I wanted to point out again that like, even though the cook I think is more evolved, kinder and gentler, um, killing has to be done. She has to die, but it doesn't mean he likes it, but guiltily he gets into it. Meanwhile, the combination, the other side of that is even though while the cook enjoys Sally's spiral into historic hysterical terror, Hitch, the hitchhiker, is just mocking and mugging and shows himself, in my opinion, to be by far the most cruel and soulless of these three guys. And I think that somewhat goes against my observation about him last time when we were talking about his social interaction with the kids and how he keeps relentlessly in the van, like relentlessly trying to be optimistic and thinking he's going to salvage it. And like, it takes him a long while to kind of give up on them and his relationship with them. I think that you clearly see that he, at the same time, I guess it fits a, a psychological paradigm because he has this curdled desire to connect with others but when it's unmet, when his need is unfulfilled, it turns into a deep animosity for someone like Sally, one of these people that he he perceives as having rejected him. Does that make sense? Yeah, I follow yeah. that. Yeah. <clears throat> and and generally, I mean, again, the 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 over the, the theme running over all of this, right, is the cattle. We've got all the shots of cows in the slaughterhouse and everything else. That at a certain point these people become meat to them and that's it. Right. Once he's been rejected socially, she becomes a steer. She becomes something for grandma to kill for grandpa to kill. Maybe grandma. I don't know. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great point because like that that shifting of gears or classification is something that you see in movies like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and I'm sure it happens in real life as well where sort it's of some maniac. hope Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, you know, obviously like Jason never initially is like, Well, maybe I could befriend this camper or something, you know, like Freddie's not like, well, if this teen is cool to me, I, I won't kill him. But it, it's much more human. It's much more grounded and real that that characters, disaffected characters seek some kind of affirmation, some kind of connection, some hope of friendship or love or whatever, and are continually disappointed. And thus that, that kind of, that, that desire uh, quickly and logically curdles into uh, a hatred and a desire to destroy those who have uh, rejected them. Makes sense. I, I, for the record, want to see both of those movies. I am prepared to go out and pitch Friday the 13th meets Moonrise Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There's probably a company that would be into that. <laughs> that's, not, that's not bad. Yeah. Like, I, I, feel like, I feel like somebody you could just say Friday the 13th meets Moonrise Kingdom. Maybe not now, but like 20 years ago, somebody would have been like, Here's a hundred thousand dollars. Go write it. <laughs> and I'll just note that we're not playing it with the sound, but there's a lot of crazy animal sounds through the whole sequence. And I, I've always felt some question of whether it was just the score or it's Leatherface. And it, a lot of it's happening in that period that Rich was talking about where we don't see Leatherface. I just have to assume that it is Leatherface doing it because we often see him, you know, making some kind of guttural utterance. He's, he's a long way from the silent killer that Jason or Michael Myers are. And, um, I think it's something we should kind of take into account with him is that he, you know, he, he's this like weirdly vocal and yet wordless killer. And that, I think that's fairly unique. Yeah. I will point out that the cook said it never took more than one lick. They say, because that's the kind of killer that Grandpa was. And, and, and again, maybe disagreeing with Vic, maybe not. I, I think that he really is sort of hoping that Grandpa will just, you know, dispatch her painlessly with one hit. But the great irony is the fact that Grandpa can no longer do that is the exact reason she gets out of this situation. And I think that it should be obvious to them by now that he's totally incapable of delivering a killing blow. But perhaps in, in their minds, his reputation is so unassailable that uh, they just keep thinking he's going to do it. But Hitchhiker is about to release her in his urgency to get the hammer that, that Grandpa drops. And you'll see that he just completely forgets his priorities in this situation. And in my opinion, her escape is not impressive in, in, in cinematic terms. She just kind of windmills her arms in an uncoordinated fashion. She doesn't need to hit anyone uh, because she's been released. There's nothing high difficulty here. All she has to do is just get up and go for that window. The cook may, in fact, be waiting, be hoping that Grandpa takes care of her in one, one blow uh, so that he can turn her into sausage. 
yeah, I certainly never said that the cook is like, shouldn't we really be eating people, guys? I don't know. Like, that's it's not just part of killing. my argument. It's just the killing that bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... I mean, there's a spectrum here, man, and and that's that's definitely <laughs> closer to our side of the spectrum than it's a bell curve. Yeah, okay? it's a yeah. bell curve, and he's on. Yeah, okay, I see, I see your point. Okay. okay, hitchhiker lets her go to get the hammer, allowing her to windmill her arms, and obviously a different person in a in a bright blonde wig jumps through the window. Her second escape by leaping through a window, which does sort of hint at this. I mean, we had the same thing we talked about with Jerry's death that like we do sort of run into uh-huh. these same things a couple of times. Yeah. I just assume I just assume that nothing that happened tonight was her first time breaking through a window. This is just an MO that she has throughout mm-hmm. her life. <laughs> she's quite good at it, though. Yeah. She's limping noticeably. Okay, this is where Leatherface has donned a different wig, or I'm crazy. I don't know. But go ahead, Rich. I was just going to say, there's something definitely different about seeing Leatherface also in, like, the cold light of day, like, with a chainsaw. Yeah. I I guess you've seen a manner of speaking, like, out on the porch, but, like, there's something different about um, that's sort of, like, nakedly human Mm -hmm. about his character. Yeah, so Hitchhiker does a lot of somewhat ineffectual flailing um, and goes under the wheels of this giant semi after chasing Sally into the road. And the driver of the Black Maria hops out. He has a build not, not unlike Leatherface's and immediately turns tail and runs away as he sees Leatherface. But he he pulls Sally into the truck. They make their escape out, out of the passenger door. Apparently, he didn't feel comfortable starting the car and driving away because he grabs a, a wrench and is now being pursued by Leatherface around the truck again, pushing Sally forward. They're just running down the road, and Leatherface catches up a wonderfully aimed throw of the wrench by the truck driver, Hits Leatherface right in the noggin. He falls down. The chainsaw cuts into his thigh. Leatherface regains his feet. Another, a pickup truck now. Another uh, good Samaritan comes by. Sally flags him down. Truck careens off the road. The truck driver, the big rig driver, keeps running. But Sally runs up to this pickup to jump into the, the bed of the truck as Leatherface closes in limping noticeably but he's only like five feet away when the truck starts moving leatherface swings the the saw but cannot reach her as the truck the pickup picks up steam sally begins laughing hysterically as she makes her escape and leatherface swings the chainsaw back and forth up puts it above his head spiraling in these wild gyrations as she laughs hysterically. And he, as dawn rises over the fields of Texas, Leatherface whirls and whirls, angrily perhaps, but certainly defiantly, swinging that chainsaw, unable to, in no way, conceding defeat. 
an iconic ending if ever there was one. Vic, what are your thoughts about the, the climax of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? It's worth pointing out that the hitchhiker is slashing at her back sort of violently as she's escaping. Like it is not a it is not a clean escape. And you really get the sense that the hitchhiker is kind of toying with her because he could clearly do more damage. And it, it sort of speaks to his the degree of his sadism that he really wants to hurt her. Uh, rather than actually stop her. Like, it seems to him a foregone conclusion. He's going to catch her, so he may as well. He's sort of enjoying the chase, I guess. I would and, buy that. Uh, yeah, because, again, he's he's really right on top of her. And so... The, and so I think that is a charitable death, interpretation in cinematic terms, but yeah, go ahead. His death is not the most convincing... Uh, I mean, I'm sure a lot of that is just sort of budgetary stuff that the the editing around as she's sort of trying to push him off and the truck is coming. And it seems like there's a there's a good couple of seconds that he could move out of the way before he gets mowed down by the truck. Yeah. Um, but that is is neither here nor there, because it really does come down to uh, this chase with the truck driver and. Uh, and Leatherface and the, the again the, the the wrench throw is actually I actually feel like that works pretty well cinematically. Mm-hmm. Leatherface getting his leg cut, it's really the first time we see him take any damage. Uh and then her getting away, I mean the the performance is what sells it. The madness and the, the trip that we've taken from the beginning of the movie to the the chase scene and then the dinner scene and now here, I mean, the madness on her looks as convincing as any madness I've ever seen put on film. Agreed. If like what we saw in the dinner scene, we're like, oh, that's a 10. You can't go up from there. Then you see this and you're like, holy shit, she hit 12. You know, like she just blew up the scale. Yeah, it's as I had this conversation with someone and John, I apologize if it was with you, <laughs> but that the what the climax of this movie says what happens is she survives. She doesn't win. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's no justice. There's no, there's no like Freddie pulling mom in through the window at the end. There's no surprise twist. There's no Jason jumping out of the lake. What happens at the end of this movie is she survives and that's it. Absolutely. Again, like I don't see Leatherface's body language at the end of this movie, you know, like conveying defeat. There's something crazy about the way that he does this. Is that like, it's not just impotent frustration at like failing to, to kill her. There's something more primal about it. Again, like more defiant to me. It says like, you may have gotten away, but I'll be here. I'm not done. Not even close. I was like, I feel like it's like the, the the take that they chose to use. There's almost something like balletic about it. Yeah, like the shot that they have of like the, the 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 physicality and like the the spinning that's happening with the chainsaw, where it's like it. Oh, there's almost something celebratory as yeah. much as it is being like a level of frustration. Balletic is a is a good way to describe it like it's just like there's something 
So I think celebratory is also a, a, a good word. He's like, even though he just hurt himself, he seems like spry again and not like someone on his last legs, but there's, there is this, this quality of you haven't beaten me that, and, and like a, he, he is something that, that will persist and you don't, you don't feel like it's really a, a defeat at all. And, and it's, it's strange, but it, yeah, it's something about the take. It's something about the way he's moving that, that really like, it doesn't tell you, Oh, the bad guy is lost. It's such a weird thing because yeah, we just saw Sally take great deranged glee in, and leaving him behind. Yeah. He, he doesn't get to kill her. But the way that the film ends, it, it's kind of more, uh, at least, you know, narratively a celebration uh, of Leatherface enduring and him just being this, this creature that now that we know is out there, like, like a great white shark or something, be afraid, you know? I love it. I'm trying. I'm trying to remember Buster Rhymes' line about Michael Myers being a great white shark. Yeah, I, can, I can't pull it up exactly, but yeah. I doubling back real quick. I did agree with you, Vic, that I saw Hitch, like the hitchhiker, holding back maybe in his efforts to corral Sally when he's chasing her. Like he's either spectacularly uncoordinated, or you know, he's in not quite ever getting a grip on her. He really just thinks that. That, that that he's still drawing out her torment, which I can get behind, but I do kind of feel like it was the direction try to get her, but just don't actually get her because we need her to get away, you know? And you know how actors sometimes, they're like, oh shit, I'm running too fast. I could just grab her now. Well, I better like, sort of fumble and not do it, even though I totally could, you know what I mean? Like it, it yeah. feels like in practice, this was maybe they should have done a couple more takes or something, but it doesn't look like he's just an inch away, but doesn't quite grab her. It looks like he's like, Oh shit, I could totally grab her. I better try to make it look like I can't, you know, as an actor. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you could, you could certainly you can read it both ways. I think the charitable reading is right. that he's sort of sadistically just slashing her in the back and enjoying it. Yeah, and and it's not like his character completely calls that behavior into question before this. You know, uh, I, I I can kind of buy it. And one thing I want to add is that during that whole you know spiraling around with the chainsaw ending uh and then you get the final credits they culminate with the classic music sting that has become such a signature of this film and the franchise as a whole which kind of hints that they knew what they had with that and of course you know every sequel and certainly the 2022 uh installment used the hell out of it and just like one of the like uh, the music in Halloween or in Friday the 13th, 
even though this score is far more primitive and minimalistic, I, I think that that, that music sting kind of keeps it in the running with those movies as having a, a, a really memorable uh, soundtrack element as well. Okay. Final thoughts. Rich, what, what haven't you gotten to say and uh, where do you want to leave our autopsy of Texas Chainsaw? <clears throat> well, I do want to say that just like the ending period, like for me, despite its flaws, like, you know, this room, this movie overall is not a movie that I think hits for me on the perfect level scene by scene, the way that it seems to for you. Um, not that I disagree with you. Um, I will say that this ending for me with pretty like crystalline clarity is probably like the best horror movie ending, like of any film that I can think of. Like it captures this sort of like animalistic chaos and beauty of everything that, that sort of came before it and, and makes the whole thing feel like it adds up to more than the sum of its parts. So I do want to say that specifically about the ending. Like it's really just like a thing of beauty, like something that I think about um, a lot, like um, feels like it's so setting the scene for like another chapter for all these characters, which is interesting when you think of what a weird direction um, and yeah. not just in part two, but in every sequel that is to follow, like the, the, the strange directions that this series is going to go. But yeah, I think in, in closing for for this film, you know, we talked a lot about the the early on when we were discussing it, the, like the documentary feel of this movie, and I think that that feel like does dissipate in terms of when you're talking about like cinematography or, or editing. But there is something about the film that feels wild and immediate and a little improvisational. Um, both in terms of like visually and just like how it's how it's performed like this movie never feels really measured or careful um it feels kind of wild and dangerous and you know i think as you start to look under the hood at the lore of the film like there's a certain truth to that just in terms of the production but like it comes across um in here and i think that's why it makes it so really indelible and makes the implied violence um, and horror of this film stick with people so much, even though there's so little actual, uh, you know, like visceral violence in the movie itself. And yeah, it's very like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's experiential in a way that I think few other films are because of it. Yeah. It's so that anarchic, almost snuff film quality, that yeah, just challenges the viewer to say, oh, it's just a movie in a way that most narrative cinema just doesn't. And I think that's kind of what you're hitting on. You're right. Like it's this almost walking this gray area between something that you just like this artifact of filming that isn't, you know, no studio, no screenwriters, no Hollywood score that, you know, you're just witnessing something that, defies categorization as entertainment. And that just makes it doubly disturbing because the provenance of the film almost feels murky. You know, like you just, you, you do kind of innately wonder, is this really just a movie or not somehow because of the realism of 
so many elements. And I, I think that's a huge part of its enduring power. And I, I'm glad that you, that you mentioned that. Vic? I'm going to go back to an earlier metaphor that I, that I mentioned, because I think the mentioning the documentary field at the beginning, which we talked about a lot, comparing it to where the where stylistically the film winds up this whole movie feels like a descent into madness and what's fascinating is that i think it's very clearly that for sally uh and marilyn burns performance perfectly captures that i don't think this movie works uh, a tenth as well as it does if you don't have her just doing the things that she's doing in the third act but I'm really taken with the fact that the the style and the and the camera work and the editing all shifts as the movie goes on until the, the again the metaphor that I'm that I'm coming back to is it feels like the camera is going insane at the same time as Sally is and it and it it pulls you with it as the viewer. I mean, it's my initial viewing of this as a as a kid just sticks with me for the the feeling that it that it made me feel which was really uncomfortable and unpleasant and i was much too young to sort of grapple with <laughs> what yeah. i was what i was seeing and and feeling and and analyzing it in this way but the movie still has that power like it still does because they they the the movie manages to shift styles in a way that pulls you with it. The only thing I'll say is that I think that there is a lull in that second act, which I feel like we we talked about. We can talk about it more when we do sort of the broad overview, but the doubling of, of scenes in terms of Kirk and then Jerry and then, you know, uh, Sally's running through the woods one way and then she's running through the woods the other way. Um, or jumping you know, through two windows and yeah, things, all those yeah. kinds of elements. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, which again is, is it, it's forgivable given the reality of the production, but watching it this time with a more critical lens, you do kind of go, ah, you couldn't think of another way for her to get out of the house, you know? Um, but that's, again, those are, those are very minor quibbles for a movie that can make you feel like you're going crazy right along with Sally. Yeah. This is one of those films that is a cinematic sledgehammer that just, you know, pummels you in a way that the artifice of conventional storytelling techniques almost never can, you know, And, and as dark as the twist at the end, not a twist, sorry, as the reveal at the end of Black Christmas is and its implication of what probably happened to our protagonist, like that is a, gee, when you walk out of the, the theater or turn off the movie, I wonder what did happen to Jess is so different from the way this movie sticks that landing and, and just basically has convinced you that you understand what insanity is like both for the perpetrator and the victim. And yeah, there's almost nothing like it. And it just, I, I agree that with, with when Rich said that the ending of this movie kind of like makes you overlook a lot of the various bumps in the road or lulls or longours or whatever. 
And you just, you can't walk out of this movie without being like, wow. And so I think that's big and, and, and somewhat to support that point in a weird left-handed way. When I was a kid, there was a movie with Mark Harmon called summer school, which I'm <laughs> sure you guys are familiar with. Very familiar. Yes. There was a guy named, uh, at a, a student at the school named chainsaw and him and his friend like thought this this was the greatest film of all time and the comedy the summer comedy summer school shows you a lot of the ending of this movie including Marilyn Burns with the blood sheeting down her face and the insanity and Leatherface and they comment on Leatherface you know song his leg and all of this stuff and you know in this weird mainstream <laughs> comedy teen comedy way the movie i think effectively pays homage to texas chainsaw massacre and and you get a glimpse you get a taste of the unruly ungovernable power of of the film in those little bites even though it's a pg-13 film and uh i i don't know i think that's uh, you know, apropos of almost nothing, I think it's another feather in the cap, but the way that they tap into the ending of this movie and, and get, give the unsuspecting audience a taste of it is just another testament to the, to the power of the denouement here and, and where it leaves the audience. So good conversation, everybody. Yeah, it was all right. (laughs) Well, everybody, we're not done with this film just yet. Next time, we'll welcome our old friend Mike Kuchak to the conversation because Texas Chainsaw is near and dear to his heart, and I'd, I'd like to, to bring him in on this. Should be a fun one as we examine the movie from all angles, but a big-picture lens. Until then, thanks ever so much for listening. Make sure you gas up the van to Max before going on that road trip. Don't go messing around other people's property let alone enter a stranger's home. And most of all, never ever wander into a hallway covered in animal pelts and skulls. You just might get a Saturn in retrograde surprise. Adios. Texas is this hour's top news story, an informant led officer.